What's up, everybody? You are watching NASA in Silicon Valley live for August 30th, 2018. I'm your host, Matt Buffington. And I'm Abby Tabor. And today, I'm happy to introduce a very special guest. We have NASA's administrator, Jim Bridenstine, with us. Hi, Jim. Well, hello. I keep telling people I'm special. <laughs> <laughs> I confirm this truth. Uh, well, good. <laughs> your mother is in the chat, and she confirmed you're very special. Yes, indeed, indeed. I, actually, I don't doubt that. She probably is. <laughs> She's following all of your activities. Yeah, she like, follows me on Twitter. Yeah, no kidding. Go, Jim. She's on Twitter all the time these days. Oh, wow. oh nice. Yeah. Also, Impressive. following at Jim Bridenstine. You got it. All right. At well, Jim Bridenstine. Exactly. For everybody out there, go to at Jim Bridenstine. <laughs> Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. There you go. At so, Jim if you didn't know, this is NASA in Silicon Valley Live, a conversational show out of NASA's Ames Research Center with all the various scientists, researchers, engineers, and all around cool people at NASA, where we talk about all the nerdy NASA news you need to know about. So, if you like that, we are simultaneously live on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook. Um, but if you want to participate in the chat, then you need to go to twitch.tv slash NASA. We're doing the chat on Twitch, not over on YouTube and Facebook. If you want, So, participate, go to Twitch. If you want us to go on YouTube and Facebook, then let us know in those comments. But if you can't catch us live, that is no big deal. We'll have the video on demand after the show is over, including on NASA TV. You can also catch the audio version on podcast services throughout the solar system and beyond. All right, so should we get to it? Let's do this. All right, so later in the show, we are going to have NASA astrobiologist Penny Boston on to talk about her work, as well as some friends of hers who are right now are off the coast of Hawaii doing research along those lines, astrobiology. Just so um, everybody knows, there's some really nasty test tubes to my right <laughs> that Penny is going to bring into the mix, exactly. and I am glad I will be gone when that comes into play. <laughs> I tried to warn tuned. him it is not your water bottle. No, I like, will not. You do not want to drink <laughs> Do not those. mix those two up. Exactly. Yeah. So before we get to all that exciting stuff, let's talk to Jim. Tell us what have you been up to in Silicon Valley? Really, I've uh, just kind of been going through all the different buildings here at Ames and um, checking out the aliens. Um, <laughs> Jim, I saw that. I saw that dropped in the chat where people are thinking <laughs> they announced aliens. Yeah, well, these aliens are the ones from Mars, and nice. sometimes they're a little more hostile than the other ones. But uh, but no, it's it's actually been a lot of fun. Of course, uh, traveling around, we we have looked at some of the robotics capabilities of Ames, which uh, have been done in cooperation with some of the really impressive technological capabilities here in the Silicon Valley. Um, we uh, walked through the two largest wind tunnels on the planet, which are right here at Ames, which, uh, again, really impressive. Uh, I've seen pictures, but when you stand inside a wind tunnel that's yeah. that massive, it really changes your perspective, mm -hmm. which, uh, which has been good. Uh, certainly looking at some of the lunar capabilities, a lot of people might not be aware that most of our moon missions robotically yeah, yeah. have been done. They've been managed right, you know, right here at Ames. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of moon, there's Greg Les in the chat said 3D printing with moon dust. Yes. Oh. Let's so, do it. Uh, <laughs> it's not really a question from yeah. Greg, but he wanted demand. to give us a shout out over yeah. there. Well, yeah, no, it's it's a very serious kind of uh, capability we need to develop, which is how do we use the regolith? Cool. How do we use in situ resources, resources of the moon to actually build and live and work on the surface of the moon? And 3D printing of, of uh, objects using the regolith would be 
uh, a capability that's important for us. All right. So before we get too far into the weeds with Jim, because we don't have him the entire hour, but we want though. You should have me for the entire hour. If you want to stay, I mean, you are the NASA administrator over here with her little test tubes. She's going to chase you out, or else you're going to grow a third arm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, anyway, so we're going to jump into our first segment. If we have Bill, we're ready to roll that. So, with that fancy music and graphic, it's time for a Let's Play. Now, this may include game controllers, 12-sided dice, or a popomatic bubble. It's all an excuse to play games and talk about science. And today, we're going to go Jeopardy style. So... Jim, are you ready for the for your Jeopardy? Co- well, it's not really questions or answers. This is a very. De- you just basically you're going to take the NASA administrator and you're going <laughs> to put him in a position to show everybody how dumb he is. That's uh, brilliant. Well, it's not only just for you. Remember, you, you you ultimately work for me. Remember I do, uh. indeed, I do. So so both for Jim and for the chat, because you know what? Let's test test the knowledge of the chat because they didn't get the advantage of touring Ames' oh, facilities okay. already. Right. So they may have heard of these things on other episodes. Yeah, we'll see. So if you're in the chat, done. let's see if you guys yeah. can do the answer. But we had it up there briefly. Let's go back to it, Bill. Let's throw that question up. This plasma wind tunnel is used to simulate the extreme heat experienced by spacecraft during atmospheric entry. Is that for me? Do I have to hit a buzzer? Uh, Uh, That would be the arc jet. Alex? Yes. Indeed, that is the or arc what jet. is the arc jet? I gotta ask the question. Right, do it in right, the form right. of the question, okay. so we can't count it, but go Dang ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I got robbed. <laughs> so tell us a little bit, what is an arc jet? You, you well, the, hang uh, out and check it out. You know, people are familiar with wind tunnels. You, you, you take um, basically a really fast stream of air and you're able to check the aerodynamics of different airfoils. An airfoil is really uh-huh. nothing, nothing more than a wing, and you can put them in the vertical or the horizontal. Um, and that's that's what a wind tunnel is. Well, one of the things that we have to do as an agency is understand um, when we re-enter the atmosphere at uh, you know yeah. seventeen thousand miles per hour when you're in low Earth orbit, or in some cases uh, it could be you know twenty five thousand miles per hour, or I should say yeah twenty five thousand miles per hour if you're coming back from from the moon, uh, we have to be able to test our capabilities at those velocities. Yeah. Well, it's really difficult to accelerate. Uh, a, a wind tunnel to 25,000 miles per hour. Well, the arc jet actually does yeah. get pretty darn close. And it's not perfect, but uh, it gets to about five kilometers per second, which is wow. very, very, very fast air. Um, and in fact, they Literally call it plasma. plasma. That's exactly right. Um, and, w- and what we're able to do is take that five kilometers per second speed and combine it with heat and create an energy scenario that would be equivalent to entering the atmosphere at say 200,000 feet and you know 25,000 miles per hour. So mm-hmm. it's um it's it's a pretty impressive capability. Um, there's a lot of really smart people over there at the ArcJet <laughs> that know how to make that happen nice. uh, and they tried their best to explain it to me and um, they can they can explain it very well, but uh, they can't understand it for me. Nice. Um, but certainly, uh, it is an impressive capability that NASA has, and important for our agency and the country. Sounds like you did okay understanding. Yeah, yeah a little bit. I think you worked with. They're testing things like heat shields, right? I think that's what we just that's, saw yeah, in that that's, video. That's yeah, right. in the video, because it's like there's the the hard heat shields from the bottom, but then there's also working on ones that are deployable. That's right. Like, like yeah. an umbrella. So that's right. Expand, so a yeah. retarder, if you will, to, to yeah. retard the the ex- the uh, speed of the vehicle. Vehicle. All right, cool. so I think we've talked all about ArcJet. Let's jump into the next answer. Next answer. 
You don't get to choose your categories, I mean. <laughs> and you don't get to wager either. No. But I gotta, right. I gotta remember it's a question though. That's okay. Right. So NASA is working with the Federal Aviation Administration and industry partners to develop this system for managing drone traffic. Mm. Uh, great, great, great answer. I'll okay. give you the question. Well, let me see. I'm wondering if anybody in the chat or any of you guys are gonna be able to get this, because I'm not seeing them popping up. We did a Facebook Live about this recently. We sure I did. If well, I can't that. let them beat me to it. Yeah, so I'd like let's okay. jump into All it. Right. So it's it's quite a mouthful, but go for it. Well, I, I probably don't have it right. Unmanned Aerial Systems Traffic Management, UTM, uh, which is the way we integrate <laughs> yeah. um, uh, basically unmanned or uncrewed aircraft into the national airspace system, uh, which is going to be transformative for uh, really our country, for transformative for our economy. The idea that uh, you know I was talking this morning uh, on yeah. my on my Twitter Twitter Live by the way at Jim Bridenstine who's interested <laughs> um, and and in in the Twitter um, the live stream I did there on Twitter it uh, you know I talked about how one of the things that I like most about visiting California and and this is important yeah. I hope everybody pays very close attention to this but the thing I like most about visiting California is In and Out Burger of course <laughs> and uh, the speed at which get you it. can get a very uh, a, a very delicious burger is Animal style. yes impressive, <laughs> and we don't have those on the East Coast, but here on the West Coast uh, we're, we're able to get that. Well, imagine being able to have an In-N-Out burger um, delivered uh, from an unmanned aerial vehicle nice. uh, to your doorstep uh, in a matter of minutes from a phone call. Now, I'm not saying In-N-Out's going to do any of this stuff. I'm just saying in my dream world that would be sure. a scenario. In-N-Out yeah. will yes. respond uh, yeah. to <laughs> at Jim Bridenstine no doubt. to find out if we are. <laughs> Well, In and Out is is top notch, but Taco Bell is uh, really one of my favorites Indeed. as well. So I got to throw the love around. Um, but yeah, but the at the end of the day, Chalupa Supreme. <laughs> and Long John Silver's chicken. Have you had that? Nice. We're okay. gonna go yeah. through. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> See, I'm I'm from the Midwest, so we're we're pretty we're big fans of chain restaurants. Yeah, so. well, there's no reason we shouldn't be uh, just eating all the fast food available to us. So. Brought to us by drones. By drones. By drones. Exactly. Fast but food. Integrated into the national airspace system in a way. That doesn't clobber the air traffic control capabilities of yeah. this country. So that's what really, I that's, find cool about that. It really is. It's all about the food as fast as you can get it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Faster than ever food. So let's jump into the third, uh, the third answer, I suppose. Let's jump on over into that. All right. So here's a fun one, and I heard you talking about this earlier. NASA's L Cross spacecraft discovered buckets of water on this astronomical body, which humans plan to revisit. Mm. Now, come on. Now, the chat, you can't do us wrong on this one. Come on, folks. But they're still talking about, like, McDonald's. <laughs> oh, good. So I got Soar, Soar OX says, in before McDonald's take the fund. I don't even know what you're doing, dude. Uh. So, but yeah, so let's jump. Oh, yep, here we got, we got Frankie Ranky says Moon Nom. So, got a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of new, a lot of moon references in there. Man, and the chat is going completely insane. Like Fuzzy Steve 88. Way to go, dude. You got the moon. So, you got can, it. Uh, nice. Can, can we see the question or see the answer again? Okay, like Bill, let's like chime that I, on up. I think up. the answer is incorrect. Go on. Yeah, so it wasn't buckets of water. We discovered that the moon is made of barbecue spare ribs. Nice. <gasps> Didn't you know that? We are still going with the food references. Yes. I am liking this. Absolutely. And the question is, if the, if the moon is made of barbecue spare ribs, would you eat it? And the answer, of course... Well, is yes. That's like a given. It's, it's I mean, NASA is, We're not monsters. NASA is making discoveries every day. 
and that's one of them. And I'm here as the NASA administrator to encourage everybody to get their share of the moon, which is actually made of barbecue spare ribs. <laughs> barbecue you know, spare ribs. You're going to need some water to wash that down, am yes, I right? Yes. No, but we, we, we have, as you alluded to in the answer there, we have discovered hundreds of billions of tons of water ice on the surface of the moon. And that's important for our agency and for the country. Imagine this. From 1969, the first time we landed on the moon, all the yeah. way up until, uh, I guess it was 2008, we believed that the moon was bone dry. Yeah. Bone dry. Yeah. That's 39 years. And, 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 and then all of a sudden we had a couple of missions that demonstrated that there could be water ice on the surface of the moon at the poles. And now we know that there's hundreds of billions of tons of water ice. So what does that mean to us? Yeah. Water ice represents water to drink. So we talked about in situ resource utilization, using the regolith of the moon for 3D printing to make things yep. so that we can live and work on the surface of the moon. But water ice is even more important because it represents life support. Mm -hmm. Water to drink, air to breathe. If you crack it into hydrogen and oxygen, um, that's the same propulsion that powered the space shuttles, for example. Yeah. So we have resources on the moon and the president's space policy directive gives me as the NASA administrator um, a, a direction and it says that we as a nation and this is brand new we will use the resources of the moon as we return to the moon so that is that is a new space policy directive for the United States of America and of course a lot of people all around the world are excited about it and the reason it's important is because yeah. that gives us an ability to prove capabilities to prove technologies and then ultimately with that in situ resource utilization go to Mars mm -hmm. and if we can prove out that it's possible at the moon, then we can actually achieve it on Mars as well. Hence the moon awesome. to Mars. Moon to Mars. That's yeah. exactly right. Excellent. Now, earlier you were even talking about like how it was like, we're not going the same way we went last time. That's right. We, we are doing it entirely differently. Different. The, the president's space policy directive says this time we're going sustainably. We're not, gonna, we're not leaving flags and footprints, yes. which is what we did with... The Apollo program, I want to be really clear, we love the Apollo program, critically important for establishing the United States of America as a technological, technologically superior um, you know, nation on the planet uh, back in the 60s and 70s, but also it established the United States um, as, a, as a political system and an economic system that was superior to the former Soviet Union. Um, so it's a critically important mission, but this time when we do it, it's not yep. just about demonstrating those capabilities, mm -hmm. it's about staying. Right. And so how do we stay? Well, we're gonna take advantage of the fact that we have international partners that historically we haven't had before. Don't get me wrong, the International Space Station has been a great proving yep. ground Absolutely. for all kinds of international cooperation, which has been critically important. But now we have an opportunity um, to partner with more nations than ever before. There are more nations on the face of the planet right now today um, that have space agencies yep. than ever before in human history. And we have commercial partners. We're yeah. talking about, um, you look at you know, com the, the way we do commercial crew to the International Space Station yep. starting next year. NASA is not gonna purchase, own, and operate rockets. We're gonna buy a service. And, and our partners are going to carry our astronauts to the International Space Station, just like right now our partners are carrying resupply uh, to the International Space Station. So um, this is, a, this is a, a great opportunity for us to go back to the moon in a sustainable way where the entire architecture is reusable. When I say reusable, we know yeah. what happens with reusable rockets. Access goes up, cost goes down. NASA is one customer of many. 
customers. And we have multiple providers that are competing on cost and innovation, giving us more access than we've ever had before. Well, we want every part of the architecture between the Earth and the Moon to be reusable, not just launch. So we want tugs from Earth orbit to lunar orbit to be reusable. We want landers from lunar orbit to the surface of the Moon to be reusable. Mm, we want commercial partners and international mm -hmm. partners, so all of our standards or all of our, our capabilities, the standards will be published so that anybody who wants to build a lander can, can work into the architecture, the, the critical infrastructure that we develop um, so that we yeah. can have a sustainable architecture. We retire the risk, yep. and then we take all those capabilities to Mars. So that's the goal. Fun. So um, I know you've, I mean, you've been bouncing around Ames, checking out all these different like tours and stuff that have been prepared. I know as a pilot, you're pretty hyped for your next uh, oh, visit yeah. that's coming up. Is this your way of telling me I need to leave the show? Not yet. Okay. Oh, no, we, we still got a couple more oh, minutes before okay. they come in yeah. and usher you out. We okay. want to talk about this. But we this. wanted to talk, I mean, because like, as a pilot, <laughs> I mean, here we have you're, the... You're, they're going to usher me like I'm like a, <laughs> like a perp walker? You'll be escorted out, sir. Okay. They'll be like, sir, we need you to have fun right now I see in how, a different I, location. I see how it is at Ames. I see how it is. So, um, well, because like, okay, as a pilot, this is what we're talking about is the vertical motion simulator. And I even think we have some B-roll of mm -hmm. that. That, but it's like what you're actually going to go fly is one of the supersonic or the it's the the low sonic boom yeah. demonstration. This is yeah. the biggest flight simulator in the world, I think, right? Yeah. So so yeah, so uh, yeah, set so that up for your flight. Absolutely. Yeah. So when we think about the history of NASA, a lot of people forget that the first day in NASA is for aeronautics. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm getting ready when I leave this show, which I'm, I'm sad that you guys are kicking me out early and you don't give me the full hour, but I'll get past it. Um, when I leave here, um, I'm going to go fly the, what's called the X-59, which is a low-boom flight demonstrator. The idea being that in the United States, you know, we've been flying through the atmosphere at 0.7 Mach for 50 or 60 years. Well, we want to fly faster than the speed of sound. The problem is when you do that, it creates this sonic boom that can sometimes be very disturbing to people on the ground and uh, very damaging, in fact, for livestock and other kinds of uh, oh, okay. uh, you know live animals. In fact, there's yeah. a plug on at Jim Bridenstine where you're over at NASA Armstrong sitting in a plane talking about this very thing. Oh, what wh nice. that was where now? Was it, I think it was pretty sure it was at Armstrong. You're sitting no, in the no, plane no, talking about was, the, blue, the boom, the sonic it was, boom. It was at at Jim Bridenstine. Oh. At Jim Bridenstine. <laughs> okay. I, yeah. well, I said at at Jim yeah, Bridenstine right. while you were located physically at yeah, 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 right, right. at NASA Armstrong. So that's that's at Jim Bridenstine. <laughs> J-I-M-B-R-I-D-E-N-S-T-I-N-E. Um, so anyway, so you're right. So yeah, the, I'm going to jump into that simulator over there. Mm -hmm. As you can see, that's a, a full motion sim yep. and a, a lot of motion there. So hopefully I won't get sick. Right. But at the end of the day, um, yeah, so we're going to fly across the United States faster than the speed of sound, decreasing the time it, it, it takes to fly from New York to Los Angeles, decreasing that time by half. Wow. Um, and do it in a way because of the aerodynamics capabilities of Ames and Armstrong and other, other great researchers throughout NASA. Uh, we're going to be able to do it in a way where the sonic boom mm -hmm. is really a fraction of a normal sonic okay, boom. In other yeah. words, it could even be imperceptible on, wow. on Earth. Wow. So if we can do that, it will transform the way we fly across the United States even better. It will enable the United States of America to keep its export, which is aviation. We, we have yep. a, a massive um, trade surplus when it comes to aviation. 
Now, it's I know a lot of people hear about the, you know, the president talks a lot about the trade deficit, which is a big problem. But in this particular case, aviation yes. is a trade surplus for the United States. And the question is why? Well, it's because NASA has been making amazing investments into these capabilities, whether it's aeronautics or aerodynamics or engines um, or uh, avionics. There's a lot of capabilities that are you know, resident in the United States because of investments made by NASA that keep America very competitive and, in fact, keep aviation an export for our country. Cool. Yeah. Can wow. I ask one question? Go for it. Go about for the X-59A, yeah. okay, this yeah. experimental aircraft. You bet. I'm not a pilot. What I hear is, because of the way it's built, it has a really, really long nose, I guess. It does. It doesn't work to have windows for the pilot to look out of, and you're going to be looking at screens. Yes. Mars. Does that sound weird and disturbing for a pilot? Is well, that going to uh, change uh, everything? Uh, again, these are investments made by NASA for the purpose of, of retiring risk to do to mm -hmm. do kind of really important work. Now, um, th this is not really, it's not actually new. We've, we've done this kind of work before, and at the end of the day, um, you're, you're looking at images from, you know, and I, I think on the X-59, I don't know how they do it on the X-59, but on other aircraft, you're looking at images from cameras uh -huh. to ultimately know, know your trajectory. But, it, but the, the last time I flew an X-59 simulator, it wasn't a simulator anywhere near as nice as the one yeah. I'm about to get in. But the last time I flew one, uh, I can tell you this, uh, it's, it's built to go fast. <laughs> it is not built to turn. Oh. It turns like a pig. Wow. <laughs> you could try spinning. I hear that's oink, a good trick. Oink, oink. This thing would not turn. It was, um, it was, uh, yeah, it was difficult, difficult to turn. Now, it, now okay. it's also true that it'll, it can depart pretty easily as well as an aircraft, which is okay. why flight control computers are an important part of it. By the way, those flight control computers going back to the 1970s originated at NASA. Nice. And of cool course, man. I flew those same flight control computers that were in the X-29 at the time in the F-18 Hornet when I was a pilot in the Navy. So we are coming up on all the time that we have left with Jim. You have a flight to catch. You do. A simulated flight, but yeah. yet a flight nonetheless. <laughs> I'm not going to catch it. I'm going to fly it. You were going to fly it yeah. indeed. Um, and so there's a ton of questions in the chat, a bunch of comments in there, but I'm sure that they can also direct those questions to at Jim, Jim Bridenstine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's B-R-I-D-E-N-S-T-I-N-E. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming by. This has been fun. Always. We'll do it again. Awesome. Maybe uh, maybe next time I'll get a whole hour. We'll, yes, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see, but we'll really, see how it's, your it's, career. It's, we'll watch your career with very, great interest. It's very important for your audience to see these, um, I guess, these test tubes with mm -hmm. some really nasty things in them. <laughs> it looks like it somebody urinated in a tube, and now we're going to talk about it. You but, bet uh, we are. But I'll be gone. All in the I'm, name of science. I'm glad that I'll be gone. Penny, uh, I'll look forward to, to watching this later, though. All right. All right. Thank you Very for coming. Good. Thank you. Good to be here. Awesome. Appreciate it. All right. So Thank you for coming. Folks, as, uh, as we say goodbye to Jim, and we're going to welcome our new guest, Penny. I'm going to sort through some housekeeping. And don't, Jim, you can, just, you can head on out the back, and Penny's going to come on up. It's okay. Everybody on the show, everybody who's watching <laughs> knows this is how the set goes. So, okay. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping. If you are just joining us, this is NASA in Silicon Valley Live, a conversational show out of NASA's Ames Research Center with the various re researchers, scientists, engineers, and all-around cool people here at NASA, where we talk about all the nerdy NASA news that you need to know about. So, if you like that, we are simultaneously live on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook. Um, but if you want to participate in the chat, you're going to have to go on over to twitch.tv slash 
slash NASA. So um, we're getting everything set up. But I figured while we're at it, we can just, uh, I know Bill is looking to set up some of the stuff with our friends over in Hawaii. We can introduce mm-hmm. the crew. I don't know if crew cam is working. Mark, do we have the, the, the crew? Oh, hey, Bill's in place. Hey. All right, so that's Bill and Mark. Bill, yes. are we already, are you, you did what you need to do to connect to Hawaii, or he's going to do it now? Okay, he's good to go. Oh, shoot. I'm going right. to connect to Hawaii. Uh, and also, if you're over here in the studio, Dave, we can even go to the cloud cam. Can we go to the cloud Hey-o. cam? Hey. It's Dave. So, uh, these are all the people who are sitting behind the scenes. It's like, you know, every time there's like a launch, every time there's a NASA event, you always have like a crew of people who are sitting here, you know, doing all of the, the audio visual stuff to make this stuff work. There's and somebody behind it. So, yeah. uh, we wanted to give them a shout out. And also going to say, so, all right, we're following the Twitch chat. And just as a heads up, I'm looking at the chat live, but it is going way faster than I could even possibly read it. But we have, I'm going to give a shout out to my friend Kayvon. He's actually moderating the chat. So he's the human being behind the NASA username in the chat. So just as a heads up, we love the emotes. We love the shout outs. But if you want us to actually read what you say, you need to add a real question. And so what Kayvon is doing is grabbing and compiling all those questions for me. And so in case I didn't get something in real time, um, like, just don't be surprised if we grab an old question. But with that, Abby. With that, Matt, look who it is. It's Penny Boston. Yay, welcome, welcome Thank Penny. Thank you. Great to see you guys. Penny is a scientist here and the director of the NASA Astrobiology Institute. And we're going to get into that, and we're going to go live to a ship off the coast of Hawaii, where some researchers are working, and they're figuring out ways to to search for life. See, they're mm-hmm. trying to understand how we might be able to find life in the solar system. So we're going to get into all of that. But first of all, Penny is an astrobiologist. I don't think that existed when I was in high school and taking biology and chemistry. So what is it exactly? What Uh, are you trying to answer? Astrobiology is a huge field and it really um, focuses on uh, life in the universe. So we have one example right now, which is us. Yeah. Not just us humans, but us. Earth life. uh, Earth life. Right. And we're trying to figure out how to look for uh, life forms of some sort on other planets. Right. And um, or even other bodies. So moons. Yeah, or, moons yeah. or maybe even small bodies might have something to to teach us about that. Okay. Is that all? No. Is that a, no? No. <laughs> Just kidding. It's is never the, all. Is that the only challenge you're trying to tackle? <laughs> no, we we're really trying to even understand life on this planet. Yeah, it's origin and evolution, and then what we w- learn from that, of course, enriches our understanding of our own planet. But then we can generalize that out mm-hmm. to these other bodies. Tell us what we might look yeah. for, right? Yeah. And one of the important implications, of course, is um, I think most of us are convinced that there's life elsewhere in our galaxy and yeah. beyond. Cool. Uh, but it's a really darn big place. The galaxy is enormous, yeah. and. Um, Many other solar systems are light years away, and so how do we figure out how to look for that? Um, What are the signals (laughs) that life might be showing us there? And what are the signals that we can find right here in our own solar system? So Mm -hmm. how do we figure out how to look for life? How do we know when we've detected it, if it's really different from here? Yeah. And, and then, you know, one uh, of the third class of questions that NASA has in its, uh, in its science plan is, what is the future of life on Earth and beyond? 
Uh-oh. So how do planets uh, not only give rise to life, mm-hmm. but how does that life develop through the course of a solar system's history, including our own? So before Amazing. we get too far in the weeds, just as a shout out, I'm getting the sign that they want you to speak a little bit closer okay. into the mic. Let uh, me walk we, myself we'll need to like forward. Scooch a little bit. <laughs> we just we get were on laughing a, earlier because I'm stool a short person so and you Penny. have tall stools. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're like poor Penny's crawling up and crawling out of there. But before we go too much in the in, in the weeds, it's like. Penny brought a lot of fun stuff for us to yeah, check she out. Did. But before we go into that, we're going to start rolling our next segment, which I'm sure Bill is going to get ready to cue on up for us. Weird science. <laughs> I feel like there should be a voiceover. There. Exactly. Maybe we'll add a voiceover. Weird but science. This is the part of the show that we call <laughs> Weird Science. And yes, we want to hear from our guests about the craziest things that they've had to do in the name of science. So... We know you got stories. I got stories. So lay one I, on us. Uh, well, uh, my own personal area of research, besides my work managing science at NASA, <laughs> yeah. is um, in the subsurface, uh, caves and mines. Mm-hmm. And the caves that we pick are the ones that are the most poisonous, the most likely to kill you. Naturally, well, of course. Yeah, and that's not just because we want to be on reality TV. It's because uh, those are the places where the really unusual microorganisms will be yeah. living. And wow. so we're looking for guys that can make their living in high temperatures, low temperatures, um, environments that to us are poisonous, but uh-huh. uh, to them it's home sweet home. And so that means that we have to go into these uh, dangerous environments. Yeah. And so we've been in places where things have collapsed on us. We've oh, been wow. in places where uh, we couldn't breathe the air because it's so full of carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and Whoa. hydrogen sulfide. So we have to wear breathing gases. So, so I'm going to jump in real quick because we have a question from Echo sure. Atlas. Is asked, he's like, can you ask Penny? It's like, what is the most common life form an astrobiologist is looking for? something that's tough as nails and will fit a particular place that we're looking at. So if we're looking at Mars, my favorite place on Mars is going to be in the subsurface. Okay. okay. I Underground, think that, yeah, away from... And that's not just because I'm a cave dude, you know. Okay. It's because that uh, in the Martian subsurface, things are going to be more protected mm-hmm. than they are on the surface. And so we know that modern Mars is a really dry um, really cold place with a lot of radiation hitting the surface. But the subsurface, we're beginning to get more and more evidence that it's a much cozier place, especially for these tough little dudes. Mm. Or so These little dudes, yeah. we're talking about microbes. Is, do we mean bacteria? We mean do bacteria. Do we need to jump into some of the toys over we here? Mean we mean archaea, which is another group of tiny oh, organisms that okay. other people may not, not exactly be familiar bacteria. with, yeah. but they're bacteria size. Um, there are things called protists. If you ever looked at an amoeba mm-hmm. in high school yeah. biology class, you would have seen things like that. Like that. Maybe okay. fungi. We don't yeah. know. Viruses, maybe even. Maybe. Yeah. Getting back to the cave exploration, yes. I didn't yes. want them to miss. We have a photo of you in the gear that's required to <laughs> I explore. I always look some really glamorous places. in these things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where are we at? 
Like that's, a hazmat suit. Yeah, that's nuts. You might think that I'm all duded up like that to try to stay warm, but the truth is that I'm actually packed in ice. Oh, so I've wow. got an ice vest on underneath. I've got an ice pack under my caving helmet, Jeez. and uh, I'm breathing cooled air from what? a backpack on my back. And this was to go into uh, the Nika Cave system in uh, Chihuahua in Mexico, which is a super hot system. Yeah, It's about 130 yeah. to 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. And humans can't really tolerate that. So we did the best we could to cool ourselves down to get in there. Um, But the punchline is that it's a beautiful set of caves with no natural openings. It was only discovered by um, mining activities. And those organisms in there, uh, it's home sweet home for them. So, so we, we yeah. are being completely inundated with questions, and we, we may want to do a rapid-fire thing, but I know we have toys sitting we over do, here. We, we have toys. toys. So what, so what do we want to show us? The goal of toys is to play with know, toys. You tell me what you want me to grab over here. Well, maybe... Um, you know, let me start with the oldest thing that I have. Yeah, I was going to suggest that. This is the that. oldest thing that I have, and you can just place it there, and David's going to zoom in on it. polished, so you can see layers. Let me see if I got it the right way. This way. Okay, so these layers are horizontal here. And this represents a time when microorganisms had just invented the type of photosynthesis that produces free oxygen. And we are indebted to them because they make life for our kinds of large energy requiring creatures like humans and canaries and, you know, potted plants. Um, possible. Mm -hmm. So they started to produce oxygen and that would react with the iron in the ocean and then that would precipitate out into a layer and then that would sort of take all the oxygen away for a while and then that had to build up again. So this is a um, 3.2 billion year old rock. And so we know that this is an indirect evidence of the very, very early life. So is it like, um, so iron reacting with oxygen is, is like rust, right? Yes. So is that what I'm seeing, it's those, red. those so reddish the red bands? bands? Right, yeah. and when the iron hasn't reacted, when it's in a, uh, a different chemical state where it doesn't have so many oxygens glued onto it, mm-hmm. um, then it's the dark color. Okay. So, so we find that in the earliest yeah. history of the planet. Okay, so what you're saying is that this rock holds evidence of life. Right. And we doing sure hope there's things. something like that on Mars, but we don't know yet. Okay. We don't know yet. So that's the kind of thing a rock can tell you oh, yeah. in the search for life. Rocks are amazing because oh, um, cool, they can man. tell us so much. So, um, look at that is one. That, is that the, it let's is. Come back to that one. It, okay. I don't want to talk I'm going to hold gonna, it because it's my favorite. <laughs> She's going to hold on to it. She's just going to cradle it in her arms yes. while we talk about things. It's precious. So you mentioned the photosynthesis. Yes, um, plants do but, it. Yeah, they do. But microbes did it before. Before. Okay, yeah. microbes did it first. Yeah. What about in your caves? You're studying organisms that seem to live without sunlight. Yes, yes, and they do. And so the guys that I'm particularly interested in don't use uh, sunlight because uh-huh. there isn't any in there. Yeah. <laughs> and so the ones that I really care about are guys that essentially eat rock. Wow. They okay. eat rock, they dissolve the rock, awesome. and they get minerals out of the rock that they then uh, react with chemically. That's so cool. And they get their energy instead of from photosynthesis or burning food like we do, yeah, the we, animals. We think that's the only way that right. life can live. And, and we thought that until um, in the late 1970s, we understood okay. about these deep sea hydrothermal vents. 
and that there was stuff going on in the deep ocean that was really different from yeah. here. And then we started looking other places. So. so at a certain point, we're going to need to jump over to our friends in Hawaii. Yeah, but I are. do want to do a quick rapid fire because there's a bunch of questions about ca- about caves. Penny, this is um, Kazumurai is asking if you've ever been to Carlsbad Caverns. Well, you know, I uh, was just there uh Really? Um, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> so yes. I, yes. Okay, that's <laughs> that's a, well, this is rapid fire. That's, that's all they're getting right now. <laughs> okay. So have you ever been to the Natural Bridge Caverns in Texas? This is ghost uh, quick. No, I have not been there. And then what's the best technological advancements in astrobiology ever since Penny started her research? This is from Yamil. Ooh, well, um, gosh, just about everything we do. Uh, the, <laughs> the field has revolutionized. You have to understand that I've been doing this for 40 years. Uh, before we even called it astrobiology, oh, cool. <laughs> looking for exotic organisms and and here's yeah. an interesting one. It's kind of similar, but like to the ice idea is like like how are we gonna? This is from Clorithium. Like how are we gonna check for life on Europa when the ice is like ten miles thick? Well, you know, Good ultimately question. we want to get into the ocean on the inside, but I think that there are lots of other possible habitats that organisms could be living that are much closer to the surface. And when we look at Antarctica, we see, you know, fracture habitats, we see shallow caves in the ice that are created by, um, you know, warmer spots that are coming uh, from volcanic activity and so forth. So there's a lot of places to look. And then I'm I'm jumping in one more time just because this is a good question and it's one of the topics I know that Abby wants to talk about, so I'm jumping in front of it. This is, this comes from Higgs Bacon, awesome name. Between Enceladus and Titan, which moon seems more promising for uh, life? Uh, uh, to, to, for a NASA mission. Enceladus versus Titan. Yeah, I there could be both. only one. <laughs> I want to go to both. Yeah. Um, Enceladus is wonderful because it's going poof and giving us sample that's coming out of the planet without us having to dig in like there. Like geysers, it's literally yeah, spitting. Totally. Like stuff in. But yeah. when you look at Titan, it looks so Earth-like, it looks so familiar. So Titan certainly at least has prebiotic chemistry going on and maybe there's some kind of lifelike process. We have well, no idea. So I want to go to both. To uh, I'm greedy yeah. and I want to go everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> refuse to choose. I refuse to choose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have? Well, I, I have. Up? I have so many questions. Uh, it's quite insane. But I, I don't know if we want to go for it. Keep going. Yeah. But yeah. I we have going. other things that we, we definitely well, want to talk about before we go yeah. to Hawaii. Yeah. Mm, okay, Gabby. Another. Do you want the vials? The vials are interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. And while you're Sure. That might let you tell us what's the deal with hydrothermal vents. If you just keep it there and Dave will zoom in on it. Right. And your caves and things that might live there. Why do we talk to our buddies who work in the ocean is what I think the essence of the question is. And it's because, amazingly enough, the microorganisms that live in the bottom of the ocean um, are doing amazing things. They're tunneling through volcanic glasses Mm -hmm. and other rock types. And a lot of the organisms that we have in caves are also doing something like that. Okay. So even though they live in what we, from our human perspective, think Mm -hmm. are wildly different environments, but man, their lifestyle 
is very similar. Uh And we even see uh, genetic relatedness between some of our cave organisms and deep sea hydrothermal vents. And we've known that within our uh, research group for the last 20 or or more years. So we think they're deeply connected in the history of life. So the things you study on land in crazy caves. Right. Those crazy microbes and those crazy crazy ones at the bottom of the the ocean. And we can learn from each other. Right, right. We can compare these different habitats. And then that sort of thing tells you, sorry, what you might look for <laughs> in the out- yes. outer solar system yeah. on the moons people were just asking we're, about. We're right? obviously, obviously really interested in how life did all of its stuff on Earth. Yeah. But we use this as a template, as a, as a pattern for mm-hmm. uh, how do we figure out where to look on these other amazing places? Because when you look at our solar system, um, we got one of everything of every kind of body, you know. Okay. Like we got hot, we hot got cold, dry. we got big, we got small, we yeah. got so, wet, we got dry, yeah. So a shout out for Dave from TD Waffle. He's saying, Dave, zoom in on the vials. <laughs> <laughs> and also uh, LeBron James' headband is like saying, let the man speak, because I got questions. For example... <laughs> let the man speak and ask um, my question. <laughs> Fox Tango typed in the chat just like you can and was asking Penny, what are the chances of finding DNA-based life elsewhere and oh man the thing is going too fast and i've completely lost the chain because the chat's moving too fast so anyways well let's just kind of go with that like dna based well, life form dna is um one sort of way of coding living information mm-hmm. i can imagine a whole lot of other different ways so since we already understand uh quite a bit about how, how dna works here uh we for sure are going to look for that but I know that nature is amazing and may have great ways to make living things out of other stuff. So mm-hmm. we're not just hedging our bets on one chemical system. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have done work on alternative DNAs where oh. they're sort of similar, but you know the details are different. Yeah. And um, we know that um, maybe there are ways to put carbon together in different ways. Of course, people have long yeah. suggested silicon, and we're right here in Silicon Valley, so. Let's um, go with it. How, yeah. Nice transition. <laughs> Speaking of nature is amazing. Let's segue. leave Silicon Valley. I know. Let's depart <sighs> the the nice warm temperature of Silicon Valley and let's head to Hawaii. Um, we we're going to see if we it? can get the Skype up and working. Yeah. Hey, 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 guys. Hey. How's it going? Hi. Darling. Hey. Let me. Hey, 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 let me introduce you to our viewers. Here we have Darlene Lim. She is a scientist here at NASA Ames, and she is leading this project. We're going to hear more about. And next to her is Chris German. He's a senior scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Hey, so where are you? Tell us. We are. We're on. We're actually in the studio of the amazing Nautilus, which is the ship that we're on. And uh, the ship's about 64 meters, I think, in length. That's about right. And uh, we've got a crew of just shy of 50. So we're kind of tucked away on the second level, um, sub kind of uh, main level. And um, we're not sick, which is a good thing. We were super seasick for a little while. I heard about that. (laughs) Yeah. Because of course we had that. (laughs) Oh yuck! And the hurricane come in. And uh, yeah, this this whole ship was not smelling too good and uh, bouncy. (laughs) Yeah, all in the name of science. Right. We're sitting about 20 miles south of the big island of Hawaii, right over um, Nice. I can see the ocean a little bit through the window behind you. Yeah, a little tidal. It's like moving up and down. (laughs) 
it's yeah. not moving up and down as much as it was. Yeah. Okay. We're lucky. What, we're, we're in a better C state right now. Good. <laughs> All right. So we're going to talk about your project, which conveniently or appropriately is called Sub C because you are going Sub C. Right. But I suspect that's an acronym. I know. Sub C. <laughs> that's very fortuitous. It feels like it's an acronym. Right. So what is Tells, that? Yeah. What does it stand for? And in a nutshell, what are you doing out there? Okay, let's let's make sure we remember, because you see the the way that we, so this is gonna be really funny, because just a little secret, but the way we put our project names together a lot of the time is we pick a word, and then we put <laughs> it out on it. the group mailing list, and we say who can actually add some words to this word that sort of makes sense, and so I think to this one doesn't acronym. make sense, but it's like systematic underwater biological science <laughs> and, and exploration, exploration analog. analog. Boom! Yay! <laughs> Right? <laughs> you can play along at home on the chat as well. And if you've got right. a better version of yeah. Sipsy, send yeah. right. it in now. Yeah, we'll write a proposal if you got a better you know. you got a better name. We're ready to change it. Okay. Yeah. So what does all that mean? You're doing science, you're doing exploration. It's an analog. What do we you do? are. Yeah, it's actually a really fun analog, and it's a partnership between NASA and NOAA and the Ocean Exploration Trust. And it's an analog that allows us to explore um, our Earth's ocean as a point of comparison to ocean world systems, such as Enceladus. But the other cool thing is that this entire operational setup that we use to do our science on the ship um, and from shore, where we actually have a whole bunch of scientists tucked away in Rhode Island that are interacting with us while we actually do our time. That's called telepresence, and that's an amazing analog as well for future mission concepts for human spaceflight called low latency telerobotics. So there's kind of multiple levels of uh, and multiple different things going on in this project, um, which are geared at being analogous to different operational and physical um, environments. And yeah. so um, in terms of the science, actually, this is why I wanted there Chris German, who's like our deputy and amazing chief statist, um, can give you a really nice overview and deep dive for the better term <laughs> on, uh, on the science. <laughs> nice. Okay. High five myself. So, so we should say. We... And then we've got ops and tech. Yes, right, right. Okay, so first I just wanted to say we keep saying analog, and that means Yeah, a what does simil- that mean for people? Yeah. Do you want to explain that? It's a similar situation uh, yeah, sure. on Earth. It, it's a, it's a, uh, an environment on Earth that we think has some similarities to um, some kind of planetary environment that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. So when we're looking at the ocean uh, worlds, these icy moons with a whole lot of liquid on the inside, then uh, the sea environment is one of our closest analogs to that. Yeah, like similar. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But it's a fancier name. It's a fancy name, oh, yeah. Right. We a, have to have long words It's a scientific way. <laughs> okay, so as Darlene just said, there are a lot of different elements to Subsea, right? So Darlene, the way I think of it is different storylines, and it's like, choose your own adventure when you're talking about Subsea. So first of all, you, awesome. you, yeah. you want to talk about the science storyline? Tell us what is the object of your exploration, <laughs> the volcano. Um, all right, well, wh- I'll, just, I'll give you a quick high level, and then I'm going to have Chris like okay. do the magic but basically as he mentioned we're sitting on top of Loihi Seamount which is the next Hawaii island well next if you have some way of like moving forward 48 hours you know and staying alive that long it's about how long it'll take before it kind of pops through the surface but um we're here because this volcanic environment a really interesting intra plates not two plates meeting it's rather right it's a really neat environment where we can study it not only for its 
you know, value as a place to study as, a, as an ocean um, exploration spot, but also because it's a wonderful opportunity for us to study it as an analog, as a point of comparison to Enceladus. And so with that, part two, Chris. <laughs> yes, I think the key thing is that um, there's lots of different places on our own planet that have hydrothermal activity, but the ones we care about most in from this analog, you would have made. Now we know what an analog is. We know we don't know that there's tectonics on other planets, but we know there are volcanoes on these other planets. Um, for example, like on Io, they have volcanoes today. On Mars, there are extinct volcanoes, but so they've been active in the past. So when it comes to Enceladus and Europa, there's no reason why there would be similar kinds of geologic activity on their sea floor. So those places are too far from the sun to have much energy coming that's available for photosynthesis. But like pointing out, the first half of Earth history didn't have much photosynthesis there. If you'd come here at the wrong time, what you'd have found was a bunch of rock-chomping slime at the bottom of the ocean, maybe. And oh, uh, so that's the kind of stuff we're working on now, because it may well be sitting elsewhere in the universe, and actually much closer to home. You know, we don't have to worry about exoplanets necessarily, right. but there's ways that we can have life much closer to home, like closer in than we've even been to so far with our own spacecraft. So, oh, so as, as you guys were talking, uh, and you don't, I know you can't see it on your side in Hawaii. They're playing B-roll of of yeah. the robotic, the robotics traveling through the ocean, going through those caves in Hawaii. And so that actually is a perfect time to segue to the next segment that we're gonna roll on up <laughs> as soon as it's ready to go. <laughs> So now's the time. Now's the time where our guests take a complex scientific concept, and as the saying on the internet goes, explain it like I'm five. So the, we're talking about like robotics, time delay. So I say for Darlene and Chris, um, I've heard the terms like low latency teleoperations, high latency teleoperations. So. Explain it like I'm five. What does that mean? What are you talking about when you say those words? Okay, sweetie. So <laughs> what it means is that, um, so when we talk to somebody on the telephone, for example, or if we FaceTime with them, make it to be such that it's like instantaneous. So if you're talking on the phone, they are right now. Yeah, exactly what, what we're doing right now. There's no delay. Um, and so when we talk about, time delay between two planets if you can imagine say something and then i gotta wait five minutes until i hear it and then i gotta think about what i want to say back to you and then you gotta wait at least five minutes for that to travel back that's what we encounter when we out time delay communic or communications that's delayed between for example the earth and mars because the planets are long houses they're in orbit around the sun in such a way that that space and time between the two planets varies anywhere from like four minutes to 22 minutes one way. So it's already really hard. You have even just a few second delay between yourself and the other person that you're speaking to. For example, if I tried to talk to my grandma when she was alive, the side of the, of the, of the world, and there was a delay, I mean, you're just answering her question while she's asking you another question and you're like, wait, did I just ask another question? And so there's a, there's a compounding confusion that happens if you're not prepared for that kind of case. So that's what 
time delay, those are some of the issues that we're trying to deal with when it comes to time delay. Because when you see humans out into deep space, regardless, you're probably going to want to talk to them. It's, mm -hmm. They're going to want to call home. Um, and so they have to be able to deal with that delayed situation. Um, and we got to figure out how to do that. That's the kind of devil in the detail work that we're, we're involved with. Right on. I, I, good. It was pretty good. I, I, it might be explaining like I'm 15. <laughs> you did really good. You did really good, darling. Okay. But, but I think telephone is the perfect job. You did a good job. Got Valley and elsewhere to be smart. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's <laughs> fair. That's fair. For a five-year-old to be like yeah, a very smart, <laughs> like clever five-year-old. Candy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about how you are acting out that kind of space exploration right now, because you have robots that are exploring for you under the sea, right? Tell us a little bit about exactly. those guys. Yeah, so we have an ROV. Actually, we have two ROVs that are exploring on our behalf, essentially. We can't go down a 1,000 meters, but we can send these incredible robots down. One is called Argus, and Argus actually floats about 15 meters or 15 yeah, feet? 10 to 15 meters. Meters above uh, Hercules, which is the larger working horse um, that, uh, ROVs. And Argus is really cool. It basically provides a whole bunch of light, gives you situational awareness. It tells you kind of roughly where this big Hercules is, you know, relative to the rock face and so forth. And then Hercules is totally tricked out. So it's like this ginormous <laughs> minivan that can get submerged you know, and not get squished by the pressures that we're dealing with in the deep ocean. It's got arms and it's got bottles. It's got you know, yeah. tubes that duck water from vents and things like that, and boxes where we can store rocks. So it's pretty epic. And it's all controlled from the surface, from this ship. We actually have some amazing ROV pilots. I don't know how they do it because they are under so much pressure. You know, like it's the scientists were kind of sitting back. Yeah, it's just a video game. Yeah, yeah. we're just kind of like, okay, no pressure. It's, it's not, it's nobody's graduate thesis or anything, but somehow completely chill and they just go at it, you know, and they're just focused and. Amazing, um, and they operate the equipment as you know as, as complete pros. So you're right. There, we have robots. We're operating them from the ship down on the surface. But then we've got this old, whole other part of our mission, which are our friends that are sitting on shore in Rhode Island. So they are six hours ahead of us um, in terms of the time zone change, and um, we have to work with them. They've got to feed back into our day-to-day -day mission as we're diving. And you know, what, do, what do they want us to do? Turn left, turn right, pick up this rock, stop hydrothermal vent, suck up that water for how long, and, and stand back and forth. And it's it's hard. The footage you were showing earlier from the caves is actually inside the volcanic crater in Hawaii's ago. Oh, wow. So while we were driving around there, so Darlene and I were actually directing what the pilots were doing and where they were flying on the seafloor. But all the time in the same headset, we had people talking in just like you have in the studio. We had people from Rhode Island telling us what they wanted to do next, making observations where they wanted to go and samples. And so they were really relaying that information to us, acting like the astronauts on a future space mission, right. but then actually directing where we would go, what samples we'd collect, what measurements we'd make, and then sending that information, streaming it live to shore so they could actually be seeing it in mission control, just like a future space mission. That's awesome. You know, I actually saw Very that because we haven't mentioned, I don't think that everybody can watch this live online. The, the whole mission is live streamed. Yes. And I saw this. I heard Darlene telling the, the pilot where to send the sampling or, you know, thermometer or whatever it was into a yep. crevice. 
oh, in nice. the volcano to get the readings she needed. So in fact, I think awesome. Kayvon, who's doing the moderating in the chat, like he'll be able to add the link so people yes. in the chat can see it. Um, it's like it's on a YouTube. It's on stream. YouTube. Yeah, it's yeah, where the they can, EV people can see all of Darlene and Chris's work yeah. like in real time. I'm just want to go into some of the chat just questions like, that we had. Of there's a person named like, Piper Kid was asking, "How long do you spend on the ship, and how often do you restock?" Mm. Oh, <laughs> that's a great question. We don't restock once we're out at sea. We're out at sea. Um, and <laughs> we were supposed to be at sea for um, actually, I think, about four days. But because of Hurricane Lane, we ended up having the ship. Unfortunately, we had all gotten on. We had to get off, hunkered down in Honolulu. Um, and then once the, you know, it was pretty much cleared up, um, then we were able to get back on the ship and head out to Bowie, uh, which is just in the south eastern end of, uh, of the big island of Hawaii. So the oceans have been still pretty angry about what happened <laughs> and there are other hurricanes in the area. So kind of turned the bend uh, last night and hunkered down in a little um, shelf cove, so to speak, on the other side of the island so that we could um, make sure we were safe uh, through through the evening. Normally it's like you had three to four weeks at a time and you're just out there. Yeah. Whatever you remember to without, whatever you forgot to pack. Wow. So I was a little stressed out because uh, some of the people that flew on my flight, they only had carry-on, and I had checked in the back, and they said, Darlene, word on the street is, you know, the sheaves, whether or not you have your underwear. And so I was like, oh, my God, I hope they have on this plane. They have, they have... Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Talk so about I, extreme I know, Somehow my brain, I, I, went, I, I went to fall on panic mode. <laughs> well, I want to be sure, like, like Penny, if you have any questions for for, for, Darlene, for them about colleagues. some of the work they're well, doing, yeah, you know, I mean, Darlene staying is dry a, on a this very side. good friend, mm -hmm. and um, I, one of the things that we were talking about earlier, Darlene, before you got on, was the um, the relationship between the kind of work that you guys are doing, uh, exploring uh, that environment, and the similarities between that and those of us who study terrestrial systems. And that even though those are yeah. really different seeming environments, but they are, um, you know, many scientific connections, many similarities in the habitat. And then yeah, the similarities. Absolutely. And, was, yeah, and you know what else it's, that I think is amazing? Chris and I were having this conversation about the need to, as Earth scientists who happen to extrapolate our knowledge to planetary applications, to be as diverse as possible. And because you never know what you're going to encounter once you get off this planet. So I think having Earth-based as well as, you know, deep subsea as, and any, for that matter, any ocean sciences, look at problems, look at the same problems in different ways in different environments. It's going to be beneficial to the planetary sciences and, of course, to Earth sciences in general. And so it makes a lot of sense that there are so many different astrobiology projects that work in extreme environments, you know, in the deep subsurface, as you have on land, in the deep ocean, you know, and in the shallower parts of the ocean, all over in high altitude and so forth. We need that diversity. And there's also that commonality of how do you actually get the exploration done. That's right. Yep. So Darlene yes. spent a lot of her time working on land and thinking about what would it happen if you suddenly went to the same kind of rocky environment on another planet and somebody takes your smartphone away and you don't have Google Maps <laughs> and you don't know where you are anymore. How do you how do you not get lost? Right. Turns out it's this bewildering level. When I dive down to the bottom of the ocean with a robot and I'm driving around in the dark down there, we have the same challenges. So comparing what space technology has come up with and what underwater technology has come up with and doing that mind meld as well, the technology is yeah. just as important as the science as well. Absolutely. So it's, it's a really rich area for cross fertilization. Yeah, Gosh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, we are, I mean, 
I, unfortunately, I feel like we could literally just sit here and just talk all day because we we're going through. But <laughs> in the course of chatting with you guys and all the different segments and such, I'm looking and we're like counting down from like less than two minutes left yeah. in the show. So it's about that time. It we're going to have to wrap things up. But a huge thanks to everybody. But I wanted to let everybody know uh, this has been actually the premiere episode for this season of NASA right. in Silicon Valley Live, a conversational show out of NASA's Ames Research Center with the various researchers, scientists, engineers, and all-around cool people at NASA, where we talk about all the nerdy NASA news that you need to know about. So if you like that, you can find us on Twitch, YouTube, I heard we had some problems getting up on Facebook today, but hopefully that'll be working in the future, including NASA TV. Um, if you can't catch us live, that is no big deal. We will have video on demand after the show is over. You can also catch the audio version on podcast services throughout the solar system and beyond. So, at Jim Bridenstine isn't here anymore, so a big <laughs> thanks to Jim. And a huge thanks to Darlene, Chris, and Penny, and Thank especially you. to everybody sitting in the Twitch Thank chat. You. We're very well behaved and asked very wonderful questions. Sorry we couldn't get to them all. But... We're going to be back on September 13th when we talk about biology research in space. But until then, thank you so much for watching.